Thank you, Andrea. And it's fantastic to be uh, with you this morning. Uh, any believers in the real presence here? Woo! All right. And if you had told me that I'd be standing in front of 750 Floridian Catholics giving testimony to the real presence, if you told me that 30 years ago, uh, I would have been, of course, shocked and, and horrified, <laughs> horrified because I believed, I was raised in a tradition which, which actually uh, held the Mass, and forgive me uh, for saying this, but we held the Mass to be a, a cursed idolatry that was in our doctrinal statements. So I, uh, Andrea mentioned I was a, a Protestant pastor for four years. One of the, I had to sign on, you know, sign on the dotted line to this whole statement. And one of the things that we held was that since uh, in the Mass, bread and wine were worshipped as if they were God, but bread and wine are merely creatures, therefore it was an idolatry. Can you believe that? So that's, that's what I was raised. Um, and uh, boy, some things have changed. <laughs> for the better, and, uh, and we're going to have a great time this morning. Uh, boy, that was such a powerful video, uh, especially for me as a person who works with the Old Testament in Hebrew on a daily basis, just hearing uh, the test- testimony of Sister Miriam, and, uh, and what a great segue, because we're going to actually talk about the Jewish roots of the Eucharist uh, this morning. And how looking at the accounts of the Last Supper through Jewish eyes actually makes us more Catholic. Amen? Amen. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Becoming more Jewish in our reading of Scripture also makes us more Catholic. It's like what um, St. John the Twenty-Third said, that we are all spiritually Semites. And when we live back into the experience of the Old Testament people of God and then approach the New Testament from that perspective... The lights come on, and I hope that uh, in this in, in this uh, next forty five minutes or so, uh, the lights will come on on some a number of points uh, related to the Last Supper and our Lord's institution of the Holy Eucharist. Let's begin in prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day and for this wonderful gathering, and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us now in power to enlighten our minds and inflame our hearts as we meditate on your word. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I grew up in a Navy family. My dad was a U.S. Navy chaplain. Yes, thank you. Any Navy here in Tampa? All right. Any Marines? (laughs) Oh, there we go. The Marines are actually part of the Navy. <laughs> they don't want you to know that. But anyway, my dad mostly served uh, Marine Corps units, actually, uh, for most of his career. So he lived on a lot of Marine Corps bases, Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station in Oahu and others as well, Quantico. Some folks know where that is. Anyway, one of our tours of duty was up in Groton, Connecticut, New London Groton, uh, comm subgroups 2 and 10 big submarine bases during the Cold War. And uh, during that, that four-year stretch, we were stationed up there. Uh, my family and I, we, uh, we worshipped with some conservative Baptists in a, in a little church 
in, uh, in Groton, Connecticut. And I was about 12 years old at the time, being, as you might imagine, a bit of a bookish little boy. Um, I got a job as an assistant librarian in the church library. And I, I liked that because it gave me the opportunity to open up the church library on a Sunday evening, and then I had access to all these books, and I loved to read, and I was a voracious reader. So I go through the little Baptist church library, read all the books, and, uh, and came across this book called The Gospel Blimp in Other Stories by Joseph Bailey, and let's uh, put that up there. There you go, all right? And uh, Joseph Bailey, uh, probably retired or maybe gone on to be with the Lord now, uh, at at that time, back in the 80s, was a very popular evangelical Protestant author who wrote books of parables about church life in uh, modern America. And I, I read his whole collection. There were funny little stories that, uh, you know, poked, uh, poked fun at the foibles of um, American Christians and kind of led us to, you know, tried to lead people to greater fidelity uh, to, to the faith, etc. But I don't remember most of the book, the stories in the book, except the last one, which was entitled, How Shall We Remember John? It's the last short story out of about 12 in this book. It stuck with me for the rest of my life. And in this little uh, short story of about three pages at the end of this collection, Bailey tells a story about a family that had a beloved son, John, who was the oldest son of several siblings. And everybody loved John, but one winter, John falls through the ice on uh, the family pond, and that's the end of John. And so the family gathers together, and they're mourning, and they raise the question, how shall we remember John? And one of the siblings raises his hand and says, well, you know, John loved to eat oatmeal for breakfast, so maybe we can eat oatmeal for breakfast every morning and remember John. So the family thought that was a good idea. So they started doing that. So every morning they'd get up, they'd have oatmeal, and they'd think about John. Well, after a while, uh, the mother family said, you know, we've been doing this for a number of months. It's, it's starting to get a little old. Maybe we're doing it too frequently. Maybe, maybe let's just do it weekly. So they started doing it. Like, maybe we'll just do it monthly. So they started doing it monthly. Uh, finally, they were down to doing it like... Uh, two or three times a year. But then when, when they did it, the mother said, well, you know, we don't want to do it too frequently, but when we do it, we should do it upright. So she got little silver uh, bowls for the oatmeal, a little silver spoon to eat the oatmeal with, and they got John's diary, and they'd have a reading from John's diary while they ate the oatmeal with little silver spoons. And uh, so, so it goes, you know, less frequent and more ceremonial. And at the end of the story... The narrator, who is presumably John's uh, younger brother, uh, says, Well, I'm going off to college now, and we hardly ever eat oatmeal to remember John anymore. I wish we could just get back to every morning having that breakfast oatmeal and thinking about my brother John. That's the end of the story. (laughs) Now, you know what he's talking about, don't you? You know what he's suggesting, right? This is Bailey's uh, view of the Eucharist and how it developed in Christian tradition. So in Bailey's view, um, uh, you know, 
Jesus just left this meal to remember Jesus by, you know, a, a meal to remember him by, you know, eat this bread, drink this wine, and think about me real hard, okay? And, uh, and then the mother of the family, of course, is Holy Mother Church, and uh, she intervenes to make it more and more ceremonial and add bells and smells and so on until we lose the real meaning of it, which is just to come around together and share a meal and think about Jesus, okay? So, really? That's it? Okay? Uh, but I was powerfully impacted by this short story, brothers and sisters, when I was 12 years old. And so my view of the Eucharist from age 12 to age 30 wasn't shaped by the fathers of the church, wasn't really even shaped by scripture, okay? Wasn't shaped by any theologian. It was... Shaped by a short story author, okay? <laughs> Bailey's opinion became my theology of the Eucharist. So I had like the lowest possible view of the Eucharist that you could possibly imagine all the way up until the point when I began to really encounter uh, Catholicism seriously for the first time. And then, of course, my views changed, and we'll talk about that. Um, but this is the issue this very thin understanding of the Eucharist comes from reading the Last Supper accounts as modern Americans. But I ask you, were the Gospels written by Americans? Were they written in English? Huh. You know, all the authors of the New Testament belong to a certain ethnic group. Do you remember what that might be? Yeah, I think they were all Jews, weren't they? And they certainly weren't reading it, writing in English. They were speaking in uh, what we call Aramaic and then writing in Greek. So do you think it makes sense maybe to read the Gospels as first century Jews maybe? Rather than as 21st century Americans? Maybe we'd pick up a few things that otherwise might be missed? Yeah, I think so. So the problem is, modern Americans miss many of the details of the Last Supper, and it ends up just being a meal to remember Jesus. You know, when I was growing up, we would buy Wonder Bread from the supermarket. And then the church elders would go in a back room, they'd cut it all up in squares, put it on plates, you know, and then we got shot glasses of grape juice, you know. And then, like, every three months, they'd pass that all around, right, and eat the little square of Wonder Bread. Take the shot of grape juice and think about Jesus, you know? And, and it was done reverently. And it was, and, and there was meaning. I'm not accusing anybody of lack of sincerity, but it was just so thin, okay? Well, okay. Well, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this. So, for Jews of the first century, every detail of the Last Supper accounts was significant. And actually, the Dead Sea Scrolls help us to notice these details and their significance. So let's little, look, do a little, uh, little foray. Five minutes on the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Um, these are the discoverers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is Muhammad Adib and Jumuhammad. Uh, and there was a third cousin as well. They were three uh, Arab Bedouin cousins who were driving their flocks down the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in 1947, one of them threw a rock into a cave mouth. They heard the shattering of pottery that indicated there was artifacts in the cave. They marked that cave 
to come back later. A few days later, they came back. They went inside. Uh, they were hoping for gold. All they found were three old scrolls. What? 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 Dang. So they just hung those scrolls on a tent pole for three weeks uh, until they could get into Bethlehem and try to sell them for a couple of bucks. You know, so here these scrolls are, you know, swinging in the wind from a tent pole. Now, to put that in perspective, within ten years, the state of Israel would build a bunker-like museum where these things would be held in a climate-controlled environment. But there they were, just blowing in the wind. So anyway, a few weeks passed, and uh, the cousins got into Bethlehem and ended up finding a somewhat unscrupulous antiquities dealer who was willing to buy them, because after all, they didn't have any title to them, didn't have any proof that they hadn't been stolen, etc., so it was a real risk. But they ended up selling them for about 25 British pounds, which is about 100 bucks in modern equivalent. Okay. Yeah. How much was Manhattan sold for? (laughs) Anyway, you get the idea. Uh, And again, once they got into the hands of scholars and uh, and pictures were sent to William Foxwell Albright, the uh, chief uh, Old Testament scholar in the U.S. who looked at the pictures that they were sending him, and, uh, and he recognized that one of the pictures was of a complete copy of the book of Isaiah from about 250 B.C. That's over a thousand years earlier than any complete copy of a biblical book that Albright, who was like the world's top Bible scholar, had ever seen before. And uh, he telegraphed back his congratulations, and the race was on to find more scrolls. So uh, the site that we're talking about is on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, a site called Qumran. Qumran. Everybody say Qumran with me. Ready? Qumran. All right. And the caves where they were found are in these limestone bluffs that line the, uh, the shore of uh, the Dead Sea. Um, some of those cave mouths uh, held... Uh, hundreds of scrolls, actually, when they were discovered. Um, Down on the plateau, uh, below the cliffs, they found the remains of a Jewish monastery. Really? Jews had monasteries? Yeah, this is commonly forgotten, but uh, there was a group of Jews in the time of Jesus that actually sponsored monasteries and had men who lived in celibate, all-male community, devoting their lives to prayer and work, or at labora. Okay, some people object to using the term monastery, but I say if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, you know what I mean? But they're they're praying, they're reading the scriptures, recopying the scriptures, working to support themselves, living in celibate, all-male community. Okay, so keep in mind, monasticism is not just a Christian thing. You've got Buddhist monasticism, many religions have monasticism, and now we've discovered from the scrolls that Jews had monasticism in the ancient world. In fact, this monastery was flourishing in the time of Jesus. Well, of course, the big thing that was found there were these scrolls found in the caves um, before the community was destroyed by the Romans around the year 70. The monks hid their library in the caves in uh, jars, and that preserved the library. And we discovered uh, the remains of what once were 1,000 scrolls, about a quarter of them were biblical uh, books. Uh, The nicest piece in the whole collection was this 
document that we call the Great Isaiah Scroll. This is the complete copy of Isaiah going back to about 250 B.C. that I mentioned that uh, Albright saw back in uh, 1948. And uh, this color picture was taken in 1948. It was just amazing, uh, the, the preservation of the scrolls. Now, you know, one of the interesting things was when they went into the caves... Um, the caves were not, you know, cleared out. There was often up to six feet of bat guano on the bottom of these caves that had to be dug out, and then they would find jars of scrolls under all of that bat guano, okay? And, uh, but that was, that was providential because all that excrement kept the scrolls in what we call an anaerobic environment. That means an oxygen-free environment. And without oxygen... You don't age, you know, but don't try that on your spouse. Okay. <laughs> Strangling them will not keep them young. Not quite how the chemistry works, but, um, but anyway, so it kept them. And so when this scroll was found, for example, uh, the leather was in beautiful condition. Just look at the color there. It looked like it had been written a few weeks ago. It was just amazing. And, you know, I think that's one of the first theological lessons that we can learn from the scrolls. If you feel like life is burying you in a heap of stuff, okay, it just might be because God has a providential purpose for your life, okay? So hang on there, amen? All right. So we also found uh, three quarters of the scrolls were non-biblical documents, all the kinds of things that you might find in a monastery uh, library, things like lectionaries, commentaries, liturgical texts. Uh, in my mind, the most precious thing that was found was their own religious rule. This would be comparable to the rule of St. Benedict or the rule of St. Francis, which guided their life. It gave their central beliefs. It even gave what I would call their sacramental practice, because as we'll talk about, they had a kind of proto-sacramentalism going on that is very interesting compared to the early church. So can't spend the whole morning talking about the scrolls, although I'd like to, but... Um, Let's sum up. Uh, A group called the Essenes left us the scrolls. They were similar in size to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the ancient historians tell us that they made up one of the, along with the Sadducees and Pharisees, they were one of the three major sects of Jews in the lifetime of Jesus. Again, they're called the Essenes. Let's say Essenes together. Ready? Essenes, okay? Now, that's not what they called themselves. That's what outsiders called them. Just like we call them Mormons, but they call themselves Latter-day Saints, right? Outsiders called them Essenes. They called themselves Israelites. They considered themselves, in fact, to be the true Israelites. And um, furthermore, they practiced strict observance of God's law. They lived lives of poverty, prayer, works of charity, monasticism. Um, In fact, I believe that Jesus commends them in Matthew 19 when he refers to those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Remember that line? Now, he's not saying in the future. He's saying that there are those now within among his contemporaries. And I think that some of the folks that our Lord had in mind when he praises those who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven are these celibate uh, Essene monks who had devoted themselves to prayer and to... um, Uh, the study of God's word. Um, Every day, interestingly, around 11 o'clock, they would don white robes and dunk their entire bodies in water for the forgiveness of their sins. And then when they came up out of the water, they would go into a sacred room 
and they would share a meal of bread and wine that anticipated the coming of the Messiah. Huh. Who knew, huh? Who in here knew that before? Anybody? All right. Yeah, they did that. Like, why don't we find out about this, you know? But fascinating. My explanation for that, I believe the Holy Spirit was leading them in the direction of the church. Because these holy men went out in the desert to fulfill Isaiah 40, verse 3. Remember that verse? That's the verse that John the Baptist identifies himself with. In the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. So they went out into the desert, usually translated wilderness, from Jerusalem. They hit the Dead Sea. I think that's where they stopped. And they said, okay, we're going to prepare for the Lord here. And by the Lord, they met the Messiah. So we just saw that moving video of uh, Sister Miriam talking about um, the coming of the Messiah. Already back in the time of Jesus, he had these very devout men gathered around, and they were actually sharing that, that meal of bread and wine that was a foretaste of the Messianic banquet that Isaiah speaks about, like in Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, the meal for the whole earth, which will, enter, which will initiate you into the covenant, the covenant that David enjoyed, that covenant meal. So that's why they were practicing it on a daily basis, waiting for the Messiah to come. And um, uh, their writings, when we, when we look at their writings, it, it's, it bears striking resemblance to things that we find in the Gospels and indeed sheds light on uh, the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist. So this is a picture of the Essenes at their sacred meal. Uh, we recovered this from among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It had to be colorized. Yeah, actually. Okay, yeah, modern reenactors. All right, so let's get into the biblical text. Amen? All right, so Mark 14, 22. He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Now look, we haven't even gotten... Two lines into Last Supper account, and there's already something significant going on here that Americans miss. And that is that Jesus takes the initiative at this meal. And he takes the bread, he takes the wine first, and he blesses it, and then he distributes it to the others. And that just passes under our radar. We don't even get the significance of that. But that, brothers and sisters, was a priestly act and you can see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls because they daily uh, uh, had a sacred meal of bread and wine together, but they are insistent in their own regulations that a priest always had to be present for this sacred meal that, ex- that was in expectation of the Messiah and that the priest had to reach out his hand first to the bread and to the wine and he had to bless it first and then distribute it to the others, and woe be anyone who touched it before the priest did. So we actually read this. This is an actual English translation from um, the community rule, which was their, the rule of their life. And uh, it says, when the table has been set for eating and the new wine readied for drinking, it is the priest who shall stretch out his hand first blessing the first portion of the bread or the new wine. Okay? This is Jesus in a priestly role because Jesus is the, the priestly Messiah 
indeed, that was expected by the Essenes and other Jews. He is also the royal Messiah. But again, we miss this, you know. Uh, we read it and we think, oh, hey, you know, he's having a snack with his bros. This right? idea, you know, this, this very popular idea, like Jesus says the original hippie, you know. Like, don't trust authority. Don't trust those scribes and those, you know, don't trust anybody over 30, all those priests, you know. Just, just hang out with me and my 12 brothers in our Volkswagen minivan, you know. Van again, you know, tie-dyed shirts, cruise around Israel, jump out, say, hey, peace, man. And that's, like, people have this kind of like this, this, you know, crazy view. It's not like that, okay? Jews weren't into hippieism, okay? They liked law, okay? They liked order. They still do, okay? So uh, it's very, what we call, anachronistic. All right, so let's look at this from, uh, from Luke, okay? Um, Luke twenty two nineteen. He gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this isn't even a great translation, um, as we'll mention in a minute, but this is the line, and it's a very common translation, and this is the line that gives so many people the idea that it was just a meal to remember Jesus by. You know, and I've had many painful experiences with this. About 10 years ago, I was doing a parish mission in Texas. And during the break, uh, this elderly gentleman comes up and he says, you know, my son has left the church and become a Baptist pastor. Would you, would you be willing to talk with him? I was like, sure, yeah, we can correspond. And he says, well, he's here tonight. Like, okay. I was thinking like an email correspondence, you know. <laughs> so he goes and he gets his son and we t- start talking. And, and uh, you know, it comes back to the Eucharist. And... The point I was trying to press with this young man who had become a Baptist pastor was, you know, it was the Eucharist that draw me back into the church. Baptists are all about the literal sense of the Bible, right? Right? And it says, this is my body, right? Okay? And then you look in the early church, and the early church took it literally as well. You know? It was reading Ignatius of Antioch, his letter to the Smyrnaeans. A little background in Ignatius of Antioch. He was martyred in the year 106, in the last year of his life. While he was going to his death, he wrote seven letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor, uh, exhorting to them to the faith as he was being taken in chains to Rome to be fed by the lions. And uh, this is only ten years after the death of St. John the Apostle. And when he gets to the church in Smyrna, he writes them and warns them and says, Stay away from anyone who refuses to confess. Wait, let me back up. He warns the true Christians. Stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father in his goodness raised up for our salvation. And I was 30 years old when I read that for the first time, sitting in my basement apartment at the University of Notre Dame, newly into a doctoral program in sacred scripture, trying to get my my doctorate. And my Catholic friend, who, with whom I was arguing, uh, had given me uh, a copy of the Apostolic Fathers, the earliest fathers of the church, and encouraged me to read it. And I got to that line, and, and I read it again. And Ignatius, this martyr, a touchstone of orthodoxy, a man universally respected by the true Christians of his day, 
is writing and say, stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father in His goodness raised for our salvation. And notice that he says which, not who. Because it's not just vaguely Jesus. It's not just Jesus in some spiritual sense. It is the flesh. The same flesh that suffered. The same flesh that was raised. And I had a a, a degree in, in Greek and Latin. So I busted out the Greek to see what it really was. And that relative pronoun, which, is feminine. It's not referring to Jesus. It's referring to the flesh, the sarks. Because sarks, the Greek word for flesh, is feminine. And so it was absolutely clear. It's the flesh of Jesus. The flesh that suffered. The flesh that was raised. And I read it again and I got a sinking feeling in my stomach. I thought, oh no. (laughs) There's no way to get a symbolic interpretation out of what he just said. In fact, he's ruling out symbolic interpretations. (laughs) I might have to become Catholic. And then a, a day later, I had this mental image where the Pope was coming at me. It was, it was John Paul II at the time. But in my image, he was dressed like Darth Vader. <laughs> John, I am your father. No! It's an awful time of my life. My, conver- my conversion was an awful experience. Anyway. <laughs> I didn't want to become Catholic. But okay. But so, so I was talking with this, this young Baptist pastor. And then we, we emailed back together. And I, I shared from, from St. Ignatius of, of uh, Antioch with him. But no matter what I said, he kept coming back to say, Oh, no. You know, it's just a meal to remember Jesus by. It's just a meal to remember Jesus by. And he's getting thrown off by this line. So let's talk about this line. This is the Greek, Eistain Amen Anamnason. Now you can take that back to your friends and impress them today. Hey, what's this Eucharist encounter? We, we learned some Greek. Eistain Amen Anamnason. Okay, they'll be impressed, believe me. Trust me on that. So that means uh, as my memorial. But this is the thing. Um, it's really, do this in remembrance of me is, is, I would argue, not the most literal translation. It's really, do this as my memorial. Okay? And what is the memorial? Well, the word that Jesus uses here is the word that, Jew, that Jews used for the memorial offering in the temple. And what was the memorial offering? Well, there are different forms of it. Oftentimes, if people brought grain, a grain offering or a flour offering to the Lord then the priest would take a handful of that and burn that on the altar as the memorial offering. And that was uh, based on, in, in, in Hebrew, it's based off the word for remembrance. It's sometimes called the remembrance offering. But it was meant to remind God of the covenant. Okay, That's how Jews talk. Remember is a covenant category. It's a covenant thing that you do. Okay? This is why in both the Magnificat and in the Benedictus, you know how remember, the, the term remember is very important in both of those canticles about remembering the Holy Covenant, as Zechariah says. It's 
because remember is a covenant thing that you do. You remember a covenant, and that means you call it to mind, and then you act in the present to fulfill your covenant obligations. Now, is remember a covenant term in American English? No. Okay. But remember, we're, we're looking at a Jewish document from the first century. And remembrance is still important in Judaism. It's a, you know, in Judaism, they say every Jew must regard himself as personally being present at the Exodus. Okay? And that's part of the Passover Haggadah that we were uh, looking at there. You know, it, it, that, that Haggadah uh, or Passover Seder, you know, as it were, makes present the, Eucharist, the uh, Passover every year for the Jewish community. So, but my point is, Jesus is using a term from the temple liturgy. Do this as my memorial. The most solemn of the memorial offerings was from the bread of the presence, which is a type of the Eucharist. And the 12 loaves of the bread of presence were laid on the, on the table, on the golden table in the holy place. And every Sabbath, uh, when the bread was changed out, they would offer some of the bread of the presence on the altar together with frankincense, and that went up as the memorial or the remembrance sacrifice to remind God of the covenant. We wouldn't say remind in English. We would say renew, okay? We'd say, uh, you know, when we go to Mass, we renew the covenant by partaking of the, of the Eucharist. That would be a remembrance thing in, uh, in Judaism. So, do this as my memorial, okay? And the memorial was a temple sacrifice, uh, an offering of grain that renewed the covenant. And I ask you, does it make any sense at all to think of the Eucharist as a grain offering that renews the covenant? Works for me. We, that's not all we would want to say, right? But it's at least that, right? It's also the new Passover, also the new Todah. It really sums up all the offerings of the Old Testament into itself, and it becomes the one single sacrifice of the new covenant. And there's much more we want to say, but it is at least the new memorial offering. And this, uh, this term that our Lord uses, you'll find it in the title of Psalms 38 and 70 in your Bibles, uh, in particular in the Septuagint, which is in Greek, as uh, the Gospels are. So my point is Jesus is using Jewish liturgical language that goes right over our head as Americans. And then we also have this statement from the Gospel of Matthew. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You ever wonder why Jesus says many and not all or something like that? It's actually due to the religious vocabulary of our Lord's day. The term many was used to refer to the whole sacred community, along with the word kahal, which later gets translated as ecclesia and comes into English as church. So the many was a way of speaking of a church in the time of Jesus. And we get the term many used hundreds of times in the Dead Sea Scrolls, referring to this community that has come apart to gather in prayer to await the return of the Messiah, which in fact is, in a sense, what the church is. So here is from one of the major documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Damascus document. That was It's very similar to uh, the, their community rule. And it gives regulations for their novitiate because they were a monastery, you know. And so they had this time of training or formation. And you could not partake of that meal of bread and wine right away until you had passed through 
uh, levels of initiation. And one of the things that they say is, the novice must not touch the pure food of the many before they have examined him. Wow, you see that phrase, the pure food of the many? That's their technical term for their proto-Eucharist, their sacred meal of bread and wine. So when Jesus says poured out for many, the many is the church. These, they are his disciples, those who have gathered around him in prayer um, to, uh, to await the coming of God's kingdom. So it's interesting how these scrolls shed light on the very words of sacred scripture. And then we come to an astounding line in Luke twenty-two twenty. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And that was earth-shaking. Because Jeremiah, 600 years before, had prophesied that one day a new covenant would come. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 32, Jeremiah says, The days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with them when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke and I had to show myself to be their master. But this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days. I will write my law upon their heart and I will dwell within their midst. And he goes on to describe it. That was Jeremiah. That was the only time in the, Old, in the Old Testament that the term New Covenant was used. And Jeremiah predicted that it would come one day. And the Jews had been waiting 600 years by the time of Jesus for this New Covenant to arrive. Think of 600 years ago. What would that be? That would be back in the 1400s. That would be like the time of Chaucer. Can you imagine Chaucer making a prediction in the, in the Canterbury Tales that one day there will be a new covenant, something like that. And we've been waiting all this time. And so the apostles are gathered around in the upper room. And when those words come off of Jesus' lips and he says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant, they were getting chills up and down their spines. And I think Philip probably leaned over to James and said, did he just say what I think he did? Is this going down now? (laughs) Yeah. You know, whoa, we're doing the new covenant now. And why do we even need to do a new covenant? Well, because uh, the one with Moses uh, didn't work out so well. You know, Moses formed the covenant by sprinkling the blood of the covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai. As we see here in Exodus 24, 8, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. That's what Moses said when he sprinkled the people with the blood. Jesus repeats those words in Matthew 26 and 28, uh, paralleled in Mark. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The phrase is the same, blood of the covenant. Only difference is that little word that Jesus inserts, my blood of the covenant. The old covenant had been made with the blood of bulls and goats. This covenant is made with my blood. That was animal blood. This is divine blood. And you know, the life is in the blood. So that covenant couldn't give you any more than animal life, but this covenant can give you divine life. That's why you need to eat the flesh 
and drink the blood of the Son of Man. Otherwise, you have no life in you. Why don't you have life in you? Because the life is in the blood. It's in the body and blood of Christ. That's why John is so insistent on this. Jesus is so insistent upon this in John 6. So, the blood of the covenant, Matthew 26, 28. Folks, read that. They don't know what blood of the covenant means. Those words, blood of the covenant, have not been uttered in a public ceremony in Israel since Moses uttered them back in Exodus 24, 8. Once, Zechariah refers to them, but he doesn't proclaim them. But from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus in the upper room, so when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, what he's saying to the apostles is, what I am doing with you twelve gathered in this upper room on Mount Zion is as epochal and as earth-shaking as what Moses did with the twelve tribes gathered at the foot of Sinai. I am remaking the family bond between God and His people. And since He's the only true God, this is the only family bond by which you can be connected with the Creator God. And so it's for all people. So I am making, I am remaking here the family bond between the Creator and all humanity. Because that's what a covenant is. A covenant is a family bond sworn by oath. Say that with me. Ready? A covenant is a family bond sworn by oath. And the sign of the oath or the oath sign is the Eucharist. So this is powerful stuff. Um, Why do we have to replace the old covenant? Well, because of this event. (laughs) You know, the golden calf. They got impatient. Decide Moses isn't coming back. Let's go back to good old foot stomping, snake handling, Egyptian bull worship. That's our traditional religion. Woo-ha! Yeah, the bowl! You know? Okay? Just go back to that. Kind of it's like sex, drugs, and rock and roll at the foot of Sinai. That's basically what it was. Kind of like Woodstock, you know? And, uh, and, and they broke it, and they kept breaking it. And that's why, that's why Jeremiah says, we're going to get a new covenant, not like the one when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, and I had to show myself to be their master, Jeremiah says. So we got to have a new and better covenant. Amen? Amen? So he says, do this in remembrance of me, or better, do this as my memorial. And likewise, the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Okay? In my blood. Now notice that the new covenant is the cup. Now let's not pull a Bill Clinton here and ask what is means. Okay? <laughs> is means is. This cup is the new covenant. Notice that. But now, we use the term cup to refer to the contents of cup, right? So you, I give my son a cup of milk and I say, hey, drink this cup. Now, if you really think about it, nobody actually drinks a cup because it would stick in your throat. Right? <laughs> we only ever drink the contents of the cup. So this is a way of speaking, right? So he says, this cup, it's not the Holy Grail, okay? It's not like that physical cup. It's the contents. And what's in the cup? That's what it says in the end. My blood. That's what it says, in my blood. In my blood here in this context means consisting of my blood. Now, is it his physical blood or is it his sacramental blood that's in the cup? You know? Did he open a vein and pour into the cup? No, that would be his physical blood, right? What did he do? It's wine in the cup. They transformed into his blood. 
So that's a sacramental blood. What's the difference between the physical and sacramental blood? Well, they're the same nature. They're same in essence. But the sacramental blood has the accidents of wine, right? It appears to be wine when really it's blood. So, and his sacramental blood, what do we call that? The Holy Eucharist, right? And what's true of the blood is true of the body, right? Good Eucharistic theology, the properties of the species intercommunicate, right? So what is Jesus saying here? This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It means consisting of my blood. In other words, the Eucharist is the new covenant, okay? The Holy Eucharist is the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied seven, uh, 600 years before as the family bond between the Creator God and humanity. But, you know, we just don't get it. And part of the problem we don't get it, why we don't get it is because of translation into different languages. So this word or this phrase, new covenant, gets translated into Latin, and in Latin it comes out as novum testamentum. Now, we get a term from Novum Testament, you probably recognize it. What, what phrase do we get from Novum Testamentum? New Testament. But if you go on the streets of Tampa and you ask people on the street, what is the New Testament, what are they going to tell you? Read Gospels, maybe they're going to say it's the second half of the Bible. It's not really the second half, it's the last fifth, but anyway, we'll let that go. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, they'll maybe say, well, it's Matthew through Revelation. Maybe if they're a real pious Baptist, they pull one out. You know, they, well, I got a Gideon Bible with me, okay? But you know, you know who I learned to carry a Bible from? From a Bible-toting Catholic. The guy who ended up as my sponsor into the church used to carry an edition just like this with him that he, uh, that he did daily reading from. And, uh, and I picked up that habit, and I try to keep one with me at all times. I got one in all my cars. Uh, I got silver round in case I misplace it, you know. And, and up in Ohio, you know, uh, you know what we call this? Concealed carry. <laughs> Is it legal in Florida? Okay. So, I am a big advocate of Catholics carrying Scripture. Okay. I'm a big advocate of... Catholics being armed, amen? amen? And, you know, Bible-toting Catholics are dangerous, okay? I got converted by one, okay? And I try to make converts myself, and so I keep them with me. I got a bunch of these today. You can pick one up from my um, uh, table, uh, but I really encourage you to seriously consider getting yourself a, a concealed carry uh, sword of the Lord, let's put it that way, okay? Uh, and, and go around armed. But, uh, but, but getting back to this idea, so, you know, say you got a, you run into a, a Baptist in Tampa and say, well, well, this is the New Testament. But I ask you, is this the New Testament? It's not, is it? This is actually the books about the New Testament. But the New Testament is the New Covenant. The New Testament is the Eucharist. But this is the irony, brothers and sisters. We have hundreds of thousands of American Christians running around who call themselves New Testament Christians. You ever heard somebody call themselves that? Or seen this on? Yeah. You know, you're familiar. Right? I'm a New Testament Christian. I was one when I was a pastor, zealous young pastor. I'm a New Testament Christian, I would say. Right? But then if you ask folks, well, what do you do as your actual religious practice? Well, I, I, I read my Bible. Right? What else do you do? Do you, 
Go to church? Oh, yeah, we go to church. Well, what do you do at church? Well, we read the Bible there, too. Okay. So ask about the religious practice. It all comes down to studying this book. Okay. And, and that's great in a sense. But as I've said many times before, okay, if you're calling yourself a New Testament Christian and your religious practice consists almost entirely just of studying this book, then you are like the person who goes to the Chinese restaurant, reads the entire menu, but never orders General Tso's chicken. (laughs) What's the point? Okay? And don't get me wrong. It's not that I got anything about against the menu, right? I've got a degree in menu studies from the University of Notre Dame. I love the menu. The literary structure of the menu. I can read the menu in the original languages. I can tell you all kinds of stuff about the menu. Okay? So I'm a menu scholar and I teach it professionally. But you know, the book, which I treasure and love and adore, and it's God's word, but it points us to a real encounter. Amen? Amen. This book points us to an encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist because the Eucharist is the new covenant. And it's not that we have anything against our Baptist and and our Lutheran, and our Methodist brothers and sisters, we love them, and we love that they love the Bible. Uh, But we want them to see where the Bible leads. And the Bible leads to Jesus in the Eucharist. Amen? Amen. And and the Dead Sea Scrolls are pointing us to that as well. And so summing up on this, look. The Last Supper is no mere memorial meal, as many Christians mistakenly think. You know, eat bread and wine and think hard about Jesus. Okay? It's not. It's so much more than that. The disciples would have understood the priestly and the messianic significance of Jesus' actions because the disciples had a concept of a bread and wine meal with the Messiah at the end of times. Probably at least four of the disciples had been formed in Essenism and even the rest knew about Essene beliefs and many of those Essene beliefs were shared by the Pharisees who also gathered in small communities to have these meals of bread and wine. So it was beyond just the Essenes. And so the Eucharist is the covenant meal, making us God's family, establishing us as God's kingdom. And it also, of course, goes beyond anything that the Jews uh, anticipated, including the Essenes. So let's just come full circle and go back to that story by Joseph Bailey. And, you know, he's arguing by analogy or by allegory. But when you argue by allegory, your argument's only as good as your uh, allegory resembles reality. And so the question is, is the Last Supper really analogous to this family trying to remember their beloved oldest son by sharing breakfast oatmeal? And when we go back and think about Bailey's short story, let's call to mind John's family wasn't building on a long tradition of sacred meals in their culture. But at the Last Supper, Jesus certainly was. And none of the meal actions of John's family were intended or understood to be priestly or liturgical. But Jesus' actions at the Last Supper certainly were. And furthermore, John's parents were not claiming to fulfill 600-year-old ancient prophecies by celebrating breakfast oatmeal to remember their passed-away son. But Jesus was claiming to fulfill the prophecies of the people of God. And most importantly, John's parents weren't claiming to establish a new covenant 
between God and humanity through breakfast oatmeal. But Jesus was through the Holy Eucharist. It is our family bond between us and the Creator God. No other world religion teaches that we can even become the family of God. Only Catholicism in its fullness teaches that and then offers us the true path by which we can become and be bonded into God's families as His sons and daughters. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity today to reflect on your word. And we pray that you continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us through the rest of this conference as we seek to encounter you in the sacrament and experience you indwelling us as Jeremiah prophesied and predicted. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I wish I had another three hours with you uh, to talk more about uh, the other sacraments as well. But a lot of the material I've shared this morning, if you want to go deeper, um, it's in this book, Stunned by Scripture, How the Bible Made Me Catholic. It's my conversion story. I have a chapter in there on the Eucharist and also on other sacraments and the biblical witness to them. We talked a little bit this morning about the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you want to know more about the scrolls, check out my book, uh, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Got a bunch of copies here. And, you know, just passionate about supporting the the relationship between Scripture and the Eucharist. And finally this year, uh, we have completed publishing um, my uh, four-volume commentary on the Sunday readings for Mass, okay, the lectionary readings. And if that interests you, you'd like to pick those up, check that out as well. And I am Vice President of Mission of the St. Paul Center uh, for Biblical Theology. I want to throw a scenario at you. Would it not be cool if people moving into Tampa who want to, like, get attached to a Christian fellowship in Tampa and start asking around after moving in here, hey, is there a good Bible study in town? And people would respond by saying, yeah, you know, the best Bible studies in town are at St. Joseph Parish or some other Catholic church in the city. Would that not be cool if the best Bible studies in town were at the Catholic parishes? How how many of you would like to see that vision realized? Amen? Okay, great. If you believe in that vision then there's something very practical that you can do to help that vision come to fruition. And that is, if you look in these blue bags that you've been given with with all the materials for the conference, if you could pull out the little folder from the St. Paul Center, okay? If you can look in there, I I had to dig around to find it myself. It was a little bit hard to find because it's a thin little folder. And if you open that folder up, There's a message there from Dr. Scott Hahn, and there's a description of all the ministries we we do. The the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology was started over 20 years ago with a vision of biblical literacy for Catholic lay people and fluency for priests. So we produce a ton of Bible study material for uh, lay people, and we also run priest conferences We had over 600 priests at our three priest conferences last year. Every priest, they say, reaches about 10,000 Catholics 
the multiplier effect on that is incredible. And it's really been, it's been moving the needle in terms of biblical preaching. We've been noticing a feedback that we're getting from around the country. Biblical preaching is coming into uh, Catholic churches. And, and it's not just us. There's other great apostolates out there. But it's in part due to the work that the St. Paul Center has been doing. And um, I'd like to invite you to take out the little uh, uh, pledge card that is in this in a very practical way that you could help make that vision of the best Bible studies being at Catholic churches is, uh, is by partnering with us. We really would love you to partner with us and partner with our mission. If you become a gold member of the St. Paul Center today, that will open to you um, all of our online streaming resources there is the weekly podcast with Dr. Scott Hahn and I where we talk about the upcoming Sunday readings called Word of the Lord. We have all of our legacy Bible studies, the Genesis Through Jesus program on video. They're just uh, plug and play if you're a Bible study leader at your uh, parish. Um, we have uh, courses on what's called Emmaus Academy. Uh, we've been doing short courses that you can stream, eight sessions long, 12 sessions long, on prayer, on the Gospels. I have a course on the Gospels available on this platform, on the Psalms. I've got, also got a course on the Psalms, on uh, women in the Bible, uh, Dr. Hahn teaching on St. Paul. And I tell you, having a course on St. Paul with Dr. Scott Hahn is like having a course on Paul taught by Paul himself, okay? Uh, it, is, it is incredible. And so there's so much more. You can read about it in, in the pamphlet. But, but please do prayerfully consider joining us and partner, partnering with us to really reach that day when the best biblical teaching is coming from Catholic parishes all around the country. And if you fill this out, no matter what your pledge level or even if you don't pledge anything today, if you fill this out and bring it to our St. Paul Center table, which is just out uh, these doors and, and to your left, you will get a free Dr. Scott Hahn book today, okay? Free books. How cool is that, huh? All right, so thank you so much for allowing me to share our mission, and I hope that you will consider partnering with us and uh, keeping some great teaching being produced um, out of uh, Stewartville. Thank you so much this morning. It's been great to be with you and, uh, and to share with you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bergsman. What did I tell you guys? Yeah.